please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. This past week in the state of Michigan, uh, if you were paying attention to the news, uh, you know that there was a new law put into effect. Right? It's called the hands-free distracted driving law that prohibits motorists from holding their cell phones for calling, texting, or viewing while driving. Now, the truth is, some will celebrate this law, some will hate this law, but at the end of the day, it is now a law in the state of Michigan. It is illegal to use your cell phone while driving. The fact is, laws are constantly changing. They're constantly changing in our state, they're constantly changing in our country, and they're constantly changing across the world. However, laws never truly fix our problems, right? Car accidents and tragic wrecks will still occur due to distracted driving in Michigan. Now, this doesn't mean that laws are not important or that they are not necessary and good, but the truth is laws don't fix problems. Murder is illegal, which is good, but people still murder. Theft is illegal, which is good, but people continue to steal. Laws don't fix problems, rather they define them. So the question is, what is the purpose of God's law? Paul has clearly argued in this chapter that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, and no works of the law are necessary. Last week we talked about that to rely on the works of the law is to be under a curse of God. Now here in the final section of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is refuting the counter-argument that the law changed God's plan of salvation and is therefore still necessary for salvation. We'll learn this morning that God wants us to trust that his promise of the gospel is supreme. God wants us to trust that his promise of the gospel is supreme. Paul argues that the law is inferior to the promise. In this section, he turns to why the law was given and why the promise is better. So why is God's promise of the gospel supreme? Well, here in Galatians 3, 15-29, Paul gives three reasons why God's promise is supreme. Let's read Galatians 3, starting in verse 15 to 29. This is what the word of the Lord says. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are our one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the first reason we see here in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 3 is that the promise of the gospel is permanent. The promise of the gospel is permanent. To prove the permanent nature of the, Paul, of the promise, Paul explains why the law cannot change God's covenant. It says in verses 15 through 17, right, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul is saying that the law cannot change God's covenant promise. Paul's first line of evidence is the basic idea of a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. We have man-made covenants all over society. For example... Right, Chelsea and I, uh, a few weeks ago, just bought a house. And the day we went to the closing, I signed a stack of papers about three inches thick. And each of those papers was an agreement. Right? I signed an agreement to pay the designated price for the house. I signed an agreement not to hold the realtors or the bank responsible for any unforeseen repairs, etc. Right? All of those papers was an agreement. Each of those was a signed covenant. I cannot change those agreements. So even in the human and secular world, a covenant is considered to be binding and unchangeable. No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So the point is, if human covenants are unchangeable, then how much more is God's covenant. Now this is important because God gave the promise to Abraham and to his offspring by a covenant. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is alluding to Genesis chapter 13. Now the covenant with Abraham is rehearsed multiple times in the book of Genesis. And so we could point to a couple different spots, but we're going to point to Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. It says this, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
I will make your offering, offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. Behold, my covenant was with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God made a covenant with Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says that this is singular because it's pointing to its fulfillment in Christ. Now the promises were for all of Abraham's offspring. right? The promise was for Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. But ultimately the promise is received through the final and ultimate and true offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. This proves that God's plan of the gospel was in effect way before the law was given. Paul says in verse 17 that the law came afterward and therefore cannot change the covenant promise. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The law came long after the promise, and therefore it is inferior to the promise. The law was not a different or a new way of salvation. The law was not an addition to the covenant. Paul will talk about the purpose of the law in just a moment in the next few verses, but the point is here, the law was never a means of salvation. Faith in God's promise has always been the way of salvation. Paul concludes this first point in verse 18 by saying that the inheritance comes by God's promise and not by the law. It says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now the inheritance is another way of referring to the blessings of the promise. God promised to bless Abraham by making him a great nation and to give him a great name and he would inherit a great land. And so God promised all these things to Abraham and he received this promise without any works of the law. Remember Genesis 12 verses 1 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. If we could earn the blessings of salvation, then the promise of God would be void. But God gave the blessings to Abraham 
by his promise. And so this proves to us that the promise of the gospel is permanent. It is unchangeable. God will not change his promise of the gospel. It is permanent. Abraham received the blessings by faith in God's promise. We receive the blessings by faith in God's promise. Abraham and the Old Testament saints look forward to God's provision of redemption. We look back to Christ's sacrifice. Abraham trusted that God would provide. We trust that Christ crucified is sufficient. The promise of the gospel will not change. God has one plan of redemption, and it is fulfilled in the true offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The permanence of the promise gives us security. Right? This is important because this gives us security. Sometimes in life, we, f- we fear. We fear that we can lose our salvation and, that, and we have anxiety about that, and we worry about that. We think, well, maybe I don't have enough faith, or maybe I'm not doing something right, and so we doubt. However, buried in these verses is a strong affirmation that we cannot lose salvation because it is a work of God. If we can't earn it, then we definitely cannot lose it. God made the covenant God gave the promise. God provides the inheritance. It's not up to us whatsoever. Right? It has nothing to do with our effort. It has nothing to do with our goodness. It is all up to God. He is the author of salvation. And so we rest in Him. We find peace in the fact that God's promise of the gospel is permanent. He will not change it. So we trust and we rest in that fact. Not only is the promise permanent, but Paul goes on to give the second reason in verses 19 through 24. It says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. First, Paul addresses the question, why then the law? Right? What's the purpose of the law? And the answer is, the law exposes sin, but the promise defeats it. Right? He says the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law defined sin. The law exposed sin. Before the law came, man didn't know how sinful and wicked he truly was. So the law increased transgression because it revealed to mankind how depraved we truly are and how holy God is. Right? It showed us the gap between us and God. But we also learn in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, that the law increased transgression because our sin uses the law against us. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Our sin nature runs so deep that as soon as we are told no, we want to do that very same thing. Right? When we're told not to take the cookie, we want to take that cookie more than anything else. When we're told not to touch it, we want to touch it more than anything else. Sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion against God. And because we are sinners, we are rebels by nature. As soon as we are told, no, our pride says, watch me. You can't tell me what to do. I am my own boss. Right? We want to be the masters of our own life, and so we rebel against authority. As soon as we're told no, we instantly want to do that very same thing. This is because of our sin nature. So the law of God was given to expose sin until the offspring should come. Paul already identified this offspring as Christ. Because Christ has come, we are no longer under the guardian. We are no longer under the law. Christ is the one that has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ is the promised offspring and serpent crusher, and he has already come. So the law exposed sin, but Christ defeated it. Furthermore, the law is inferior because it was put in place by an intermediary. As we know in Scripture, God gave the law on Mount Sinai to Moses through angels. And then Moses had to then give it to the people of Israel. But the promise is superior because God gave it to Abraham directly. He spoke to Abraham directly. The law had multiple parties involved. But the promise was given by God himself. There was no middleman. God gave the promise to Abraham without a mediator because God was the only one involved in making the covenant. It wasn't dependent on Abraham's works. It wasn't dependent on man. It was God's covenant giving it to man. So God is one. There was no intermediary. God gave it directly to Abraham. The promise of the gospel was purely by God's goodness and grace with no human effort involved. Then in verses 21 through 24, Paul addresses another question that his opponents might bring up. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He gives the emphatic, certainly not. By no means. May it never be. Paul demonstrates that in God's sovereign plan, the law points to Christ, but the promise is given in Christ. Second half of verse 21, For if a law had been given that could give life, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law points to Christ, but the promise is given in Christ. The law, as we've said, is, was never a means of salvation. It was never a means of earning God's grace. Remember chapter 2, verse 21 of Galatians. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The law was not given to save us, but to imprison and to guide us. The law imprisoned everyone in sin. We saw in in verse 10 of chapter 3 that the law brought a curse. God gave his law to show mankind how depraved and wicked we truly are. God spelled out his holy requirements in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. He spells out these holy requirements and he demands perfection. Under the law, we were all enslaved to sin with no hope in ourselves. But God gave the law to point us to the promise. The law points us to our need for Christ. Before Christ came, we were held captive under the law. We are imprisoned by it. But now that Christ has been revealed, the one whom we place our faith in... The law is no longer under effect. Furthermore, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, in that culture, the wealthier families would hire uh, basically a full-time babysitter to raise their children. While they did their jobs and did their work, they would hire people to raise the children because in those days, children were not considered to be fully human, really. They were the lower of society. And so they would hire people to look after their children and to discipline them. And these guardians were known for being harsh because ultimately they were responsible for their children. And so if the children got in trouble, they were in trouble. And so they were harsh. They would beat the children to keep them in line. Paul says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was, it beat us up, it exposed our sin, and it brought condemnation. But it did all this to point us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith in him. The law shows us our depravity and need for the Savior. Notice Paul does not say the law has no purpose anymore. We are no longer under the law. That is clear in Galatians. But the law is still important for the same reason that it was important in the Old Testament. The law of God still exposes our sin and still points us to Christ. That's why we don't shy away from the Old Testament. We don't ignore the Old Testament law. We don't ignore the books that contain the law because we need to be reminded of our sinfulness. We need to be reminded of God's holiness. And ultimately, we need to be encouraged that Christ fulfilled the law for us. 
So when we read these long lists of God's requirements, we can rejoice because Christ did all of that for us. His righteousness is now our righteousness by faith. The law pointed to Christ in the Old Testament and continues to point us to Christ here in the New Age, in the New Testament. This is important for our evangelism. Right? People say, and it's true, you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. Meaning, you have to show someone their sinfulness before they understand their need for a Savior. That's how God's revelation unfolded. He gave the law to expose our sin and to point us to Christ. You need to know you're drowning before you're going to take the life jacket. You need to know you're imprisoned before you can be freed. And so we still use the law to point out man's sinfulness because you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. So don't be afraid to offend someone by calling out their sin. You are a sinner. You have rebelled against God. You need God's grace. Thankfully, he offers grace through his son. Their problem is not with you. Their problem is with God. And so we can't be shy to call out sin. Sin must be exposed before grace can be experienced. Sin must be exposed before grace can be experienced. We must feel the guilt and the weight and the pain of our sin before we can truly appreciate the grace of God. If someone is broken by their sinfulness, then they are ready to look to Christ in faith. The gospel exposes our sin and offers the remedy in Christ. We can't be shy to call sin what it is. Right? We can't soften it by saying, you know, that's bad or that's not okay. Call it like it is. It's sin. It's rebellion against God. That's what God calls it. Sin is punishable by death and deserves God's wrath. Because of sin, as we saw last week, Christ was nailed to a tree and suffered the curse of the law. So don't sugarcoat sin. Parents, when you're explaining to your child why they are being punished, call it like it is. You sinned against me. Church, when someone sins against you, don't confront them with, you hurt my feelings. That might be true, but that's not the problem. The problem is sin. Call it like it is. Because when we expose sin, we can point to Christ crucified. We can say, you sinned against me. But, and because of that, Christ died on the cross. So I will forgive you because Christ will forgive you. When we're dealing with our sin, confess it like it is. Confess your sin to God. Don't make excuses don't give God reasons. Oh, you know, if I only just had, if I only didn't confess your sin to God, call it like it is, and trust Christ crucified. The gospel frees us to deal with sin because Christ has dealt with it for us. 
So the promise of the gospel is supreme because it is permanent and it has a superior purpose. Right? The law pointed to Christ, but the promise is given in Christ. And then we have the third and final reason why the promise is superior. Why the promise is supreme. The promise of the gospel is fulfilled in Christ. Verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promise of the gospel is fulfilled in Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law because we are sons of God. In Christ, we are sons of God through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, as verse 26 says. Under the law, we were immature. We were childish. Right? We needed a guardian. We needed that babysitter. But now that we are in Christ, we've been brought to maturity. We have a mature understanding of the promise. God accomplished our redemption through the cross of Christ. So we look to Christ by faith. We have a mature standing before God. We are now his sons. We've been adopted into his family. Paul uses that term sons not to exclude women, but to point to the fact that the firstborn son is the heir. Right? The firstborn son is considered to be the heir. And in Christ, who is the son of God, as sons of God, we are heirs of God with Christ. We are united with Christ by faith, not by law, not by works, but by faith in Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. Paul goes on to say that in Christ, we are all one. Verses 27 and again says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As believers, we are baptized, we are completely immersed into Christ. We have been united with Christ by faith. Romans 6, verses 1 through 5, talks about this union. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
at the moment of salvation, we are permanently united to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And when we have water baptism, it symbolizes this union. We are immersed into the water and raised up to symbolize our union with Christ, like his death, burial, and resurrection. His death is our death. His life is our life. Our union with Christ is so deep that it is we have that he says we have put on Christ. Literally we are clothed with Christ. John MacArthur comments here. This is a great mystery that the human mind cannot fathom. But in some spiritually supernatural way that transcends time and space, the person who places his trust in Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, and resurrected with his Savior, baptized into Christ. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. So that when the Father looks at the sinful believer, he sees his sinless Son. When God looks at us, he sees his perfect Son. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are clothed with Christ Jesus. The result of that union with Christ is that we are all together one in Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or male or female, we are all equal in Christ. We have a union that transcends time and space. This shows us that no one is better than the other. No one is more saved or more important than the other. No one is more blessed than the other. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that these earthly distinctions cease to exist, right? A man is still a man, just like a Jew is still a Jew. But in Christ, we are equal. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That means that racism, sexism, and classism have no place in the body of Christ. We are one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not racist. The gospel is not sexist. The gospel is not elitist message. It's for all people. And there's no room for any of those things in Christ because we are all one we are joint heirs with the Son. So there's no longer any distinction. We are one in Christ. Then finally, Paul concludes that in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promise. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. As Christians, we belong to Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Now, remember, Paul made the point just a few verses earlier that Christ is the true offspring of Abraham. In Christ, Christ has received all the promises. Now, the, now he's saying that if you are in Christ, if you have been united with Christ, then you are included in the blessings promised to Abraham. We are heirs along with Abraham because we are in Christ. In God's divine wisdom, the covenant that he gave to Abraham included the provision for all of his people. In Christ, we have all the blessings of salvation. What was promised to Abraham is now ours. We are a part of God's covenant people. We are heirs of the promised land. We are citizens of God's eternal kingdom. God is our God and we are his people. All of these blessings come from Christ. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We've seen that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20-22, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put us his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Galatians 3 has shown us that the Bible is primarily about Jesus. Right? As Paul goes through this argument, he keeps going back to the law in the Old Testament. He's showing us this is all pointing to Christ. God created this world to save this world through his son. God promised that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3 would crush the head of the serpent. God promised to deal with sin. God promised to be Abraham's God and to give him a great name with a great nation and to inherit a great land. God promised to bless those who shared Abraham's faith. God promised to David that his descendants would sit on his throne forever. God promised to the prophets that he would restore his people and bring them into the eternal land of peace. God promised an eternal rest and an eternal kingdom to his people. And all of these promises are fulfilled in Christ. The good news is all these promises are ours. In Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. The whole Bible points to Jesus. And because we are united with him, all the promises of God are now ours in Christ. God has fulfilled his promise of the gospel in his Son. It had nothing to do with our works or our efforts. It was purely by his grace. So we can rest in God's divine wisdom and power. Also, we need to own our identity in Christ. Right? My identity is not fundamentally that I'm an American or that I'm a brown. Right? My identity is not in my parents. 
My identity is primarily, fundamentally in Christ. We are sons of God. We are one, and we are Abraham's offspring, all by God's grace in Christ. And so we love our country. We love our families, but our greatest and our highest love is Jesus Christ. Our highest calling is to serve Christ. Our deepest connection, our strongest union is Christ. Our citizenship, where we belong, is with Christ. And so we are thankful for our country. We are thankful for the freedoms that we have. But we need to realize that our citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. We belong with God. We belong with Jesus. We need to own our identity as being in Christ. Furthermore, we need to remember that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for that coworker at work that drives you crazy. That gospel is for the illegal immigrant who comes here illegally. The gospel is for that family member that drives you crazy. The gospel is for that politician that, that hates God and despises his word. The gospel is for everyone. God offers his grace to everyone. So don't allow your prejudices, don't allow your biases, don't allow your politics to stop you from showing the love of Christ to someone. Because the gospel is for everyone. Don't forget Paul's words, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. As we noted in the beginning, laws don't fix our problems, but God does. Paul has made the convincing argument for justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, without any works of the law. The whole chapter has been to this point that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished his plan of salvation. God's promise of the gospel is supreme because it is permanent, because it is superior in purpose, and because it is fulfilled in Christ. By God's grace, we are given all of God's promises in Christ. The promise of the gospel is supreme. Three so what's this morning. Number one, trust God because he won't change his promise. Paul has shown us God doesn't change his promises. God won't lose you. God won't give up on you. He won't forsake you. So trust his promises. Number two, Trust God because he has a plan. His plan for the law and the promises prove that he is control. God has divine control over everything. Nothing escapes his wisdom and power. And Paul has shown us that God's salvation wasn't this crazy plan, that God had one plan and he accomplished that plan through Christ. So trust him. Trust him because he has a plan. Number three. Trust God because he has fulfilled his plan through his promised son. 
In Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We are united with Christ's body. And we are guaranteed all the blessings of salvation. So praise the Lord for his grace in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are faithful, that you do not change your promises, you do not change your word, but you had a plan for our redemption from before the foundation of the world, that you, by your goodness and grace, send forth your Son to fulfill the law for us, to die on the cross for us, to be buried, and to rise again. We thank you that in Christ we have freedom from sin, we have eternal life with you, Lord, we thank you for your amazing word and your grace. We pray that it would impact everything about us, that our identity would be in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us once again.